Take your Bible, turn to John 21. We're actually going to start reading in chapter 20, verse 30. But the sermon is on 21. This is the word of the Lord, starting in John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were going together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in. Because of the quantity of fish, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, um, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. Lord God above, we do ask that you would speak and that we would hear. Your word is truth, and we ask that you would give life and light now to our souls that we might understand and believe. We are your people, and we wish to be shaped into your image. Work in us by the power of the Spirit, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. You remember how the movie goes. It's a common movie. It's not any one specifically, but all of them. The good guy and the bad guy have been doing battle for the entire length of the movie. 
And finally you get to the end and the, the bad guy is defeated. He's put down on the ground, whatever. Oh, you think it's over, don't you? The story's finished. And just when the movie lulls you into that sense of, whew, we made it. What happens? Ah! Right, the bad guy jumps back up. And those of you that have the jump scare gene, climb out of your skin or flip backwards over the couch or whatever it is and break out in that full body sweat. Not saying I have that gene. Know anything about that. And it startles you because you thought the story was finished. But it's not over yet. You thought, man, we got to the point where we thought it would have been done. But it's not done yet. We've got, you pause it, look on your uh, TV or whatever. I got 30 minutes left. What's going on? I got 30 more minutes of interesting things. The book of John is actually written the same way. You get to the end of chapter 20 and you think the story finishes. In fact, actually, he gives you his closing paragraph. It's the thesis statement for the whole book. The whole thing kind of ends at the end of chapter 20. Look, there are tons of things that Jesus did. Way more than I have chance to include in the book. I I certainly don't have enough space to tell you about them. I mean, it's three years of living together. Instead, I've written a book specifically, John is saying, for one purpose. And the purpose is so that you would know Jesus. So that you would believe in him. So that he would be your Lord and Savior. It's the mission. It's his agenda. It's what he's trying to accomplish. But the story doesn't stop there. In fact, we have chapter 21. And chapter 21 is filled with interesting things. We thought it would have been over. We thought, well, the resurrection's happened. Jesus has won. He's appeared to the disciples. They know who he is. They know he's not dead. They know he's the Messiah. Oh, yay, the church is done. It's finished. It's over. The story is great. But it's not. In fact, actually, the first thing we see is the entire theme of chapter 21 is one specific theme. And it's that the church's work isn't over just because the gospel book is. In fact, actually, that's the way John tells it so that we as a reader would see, look, Jesus has lived Jesus has died. Jesus has been resurrected. He's appeared to the church. All of the church now believes. And now it's time for the church to work. In fact, actually, here in this passage, Jesus is going to feed the disciples, much like what we're going to experience as soon as I finish talking. And then after that, he's going to send them on a mission to go and not catch fish, but catch people. To expand the church to the ends of the earth. To take the good news to the ends of time and space. Jesus has finished His task. It is finished on the cross. Our task has not yet been finished. In fact, actually setting the stage for the entire conversation of what do we as God's people do? How do we as God's people serve? Framing the entirety of our understanding of who we are as a relationship to God's church. And we as Americans, I would say, oftentimes kind of miss this a little bit. 
Evangelicalism does a great job of highlighting, look, Christianity is about your relationship with the Lord. And you know what? That's true. If you do not know Jesus, young or old, boy or girl, man or woman, that is a problem. If you don't know Jesus, well, that's the operative thing. That's the big thing, the primary thing that you need to get fixed. If you don't know Jesus, you need to come talk to me, and we need to have a conversation about that. But that's not where your story ends. It's not just, hey, look, I got, I got converted. I came to know Christ. Poof, and he zapped me to heaven, and that was it. It was done. Instead, young or old, boy or girl, man or woman, we are designed to have a continuing mission, and that mission is primarily connected to the church. Whether you're young or old, boy or girl, man or woman, so much of your life is to be determined, is to be shaped, is to be structured around what does your relationship with the church look like. First Christ, then the church. Second thing this chapter highlights and highlights so beautifully and so clearly is what the work of the Spirit looks like. Now we have to kind of back up a little bit to understand how this is happening, but you remember Jesus is captured uh, by the Romans and the Jews and they're going to go execute him. And what happens to his disciples? <laughs> They all run away. I mean, you have a couple. Peter, he's like, I'm going to stick with you. And then he goes and lies to the little girls because he's scared of them. John sticks it out. He's the young one, probably a bit, um, well, I'm going to say more courageous. And a handful of faithful women. And my goodness, heroes of the faith those women are. Everyone else runs away. And then as you see the church begin to start meeting again, it's constantly behind closed doors. The doors are locked. They're in hiding because they're constantly afraid. In chapter 20, we saw it in verse 19. They're hiding because of the fear of the Jews. They meet in secret. And then, verse 20 and following, Jesus does what? He shows up. He breathes on them and gives the officers of the church the Holy Spirit. And what's the next occasion we see them meeting? Is it, oh no, we have to hide? Is it, oh, you know, all we better do, we better just have worship all the time. We're only going to have church, only always, all that, that's all we're going to do. No, it's interesting how uh, Jesus, again, is framing our, our continued involvement in the world around us to say, look, what, what happens? I'm going to give you officers of the church, the Spirit of God, and the next thing you do is you go to work. And interesting, the, the thing he's going to work on is his fishing. It's he's going to his day job. It's going to Bank of America. It's going to serve in the armed forces. It's going to do his regular job. What does the presence of the Spirit do? It equips God's saints to function in the various tasks that they're called to do. There's none of this kind of hyper-spirituality where my regular day job is a bad thing. Serving the Lord as a teacher, serving the Lord as an accountant, or serving the Lord as a software engineer, all all godly tasks. Things actually, interestingly, the disciples are immediately equipped to do by the work of the Spirit. But to the text at hand. We pick up uh, again at night. 
The Lord has worked. He's given them their, uh, his spirit. And the disciples are kind of figuring out again, what does life look like? We know now the, the story is not finished for Jesus, but he's raised. We know he's not dead. What do we do now? And Peter kind of leading the way has this kind of great, just, I'm going fishing, guys. Like, I, I'm, I'm hopping to the boat. Let's go. Now, understand, this is not fishing like today. This is not that kind of fishing that some folks like to do because they know it will be silent for hours and hours and hours at a time where nobody can reach them. No, this type of fishing is hard labor. In fact, actually, we know what it looks like. He pulls the boat out. The other disciples get with him uh, as they get out and put away from the shore. What do they do? They immediately strip down. Because they know the work is so hard, they're going to be sweating so aggressively and having fish stuff all over them. You don't wear your regular clothes. So you strip down to your skivvies like sailors, a whole group of men working in their underpants trying to fish. Casting out a net, pulling it in, casting out a net, pulling it in, and doing this all night long. You'd likely guess that this is, you know, not that long after Jesus has just met them again. I suspect these men are not sleeping well. And here they're pulling basically an all day and then an all nighter. And busting themselves all night fishing. And you would kind of get the impression that we're dealing with a group of men here who are emotionally and physically shredded. Haven't slept at this point, most likely in 24 hours. They've been working hard. They are just wrecked by the end of the story. And verse 4 kind of clues us into the action as we're drawn into the picture as day is beginning to break and you get to see this kind of beautiful portrait in your mind's eye as they're on the lake, they're laboring, chucking out the net, pulling it in, chucking out, sweating profusely and the sun begins to come up and as it's reflecting off the water, you've got the fog and the mist that settles in on the water and it's absolutely beautiful. And Jesus appears on the shore. Notice all of the stories in this new part, the resurrection part of the book. Jesus doesn't walk to the shore. He's just there. All of the verbs highlight it the same way. He's there. And as he's standing on the shore, he calls to the men, Lads, do you have anything to eat? Do you have any fish? Not children. It's not pejorative. Think more like UK. Lads. We don't have a good transliteration today because it would be like dudes or bros. And I I don't have a good time thinking Jesus uses that kind of language. It's much more, fellas, gentlemen, brothers, have you caught anything? And that would be a normal question in that kind of day. Why? You have a guy on the shore asking for breakfast. Did you catch anything good? I'll buy it off of you. You bring it in and I'll absolutely cook it. That'll be breakfast for me. Maybe breakfast for you. It'll be great. And they answer him. You get kind of the tenor of their heart, the tenor of their emotional condition with the length and the elegance of their answer. No! Sorry. I'm sorry. Apparently it's been a great night. Apparently you've had a great time fishing. You've been working very hard. You're a little bit grumpy and probably a bit hangry. Okay, fine. And Jesus says, cast it on the other side of the boat. This is spectacularly comical. 
the group of fishermen who've been fishing all night and a, a gentleman standing on the shore whom they do not recognize due to the fog and the distance from the beach tells them to put the net on the other side, which is, one, none of his business, and two, silly advice. I mean, if it was like, hey, cast over next to the shore, maybe, but it's a net. It's this side of the boat, that side of the boat. It's not a big boat. Commentators kind of freak out about the next part. Why do the disciples do it? Do they know it's Jesus? Well, no, they don't know that yet. I suspect, honestly, it's a combination of one, exhaustion. Fine, whatever, man. Whatever. And two, an inability to process all of the strange things they've seen over the last month. Last three years, we've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. A month ago, we saw Jesus raise a guy from the dead. Then we saw Jesus murdered. Then we saw Jesus raise himself from the dead. Man, whatever. I'm, I'm open to anything now. Nothing would surprise me anymore. Fine. Guy on the shore says, throw it on the other side. Okay, I'll do that. I'll throw it on the other side. Let's see what happens. They take the net up, and they've caught nothing. They throw it in on the other side, and immediately, oh, no. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> Something's very different about this hall. This is not a normal hall of fish. This is huge. They can't even pull it into the boat. It's such a big load of fish. They can't even figure it out. And here you see the temperaments of the disciples so quick. Peter acts before he thinks. John thinks before he acts. Peter's so quick to act. John is so quick to think. And John says, it's Jesus. That's him. That guy we can't see over on the shore. It's Jesus. I love Peter. I love Peter. Realizes that it's the Lord because John tells him, the younger uh, disciple here, Peter throws on all of his clothes. Not going to see the Lord Jesus in his underpants. Throws on all of his clothes and then throws himself overboard. Beautiful. This is the portrait of a man who's desperate to see a friend. Desperate to see his Savior. Desperate. He doesn't care about his dignity as much. Interestingly, he covers his, you know, his indecency, but immediately throws He's going to be wet all day. All day. It's not like he's got tons of clothes to change into, I'm sure. I mean, he's been traveling with the rabbi for years at this point. Throws himself into the sea. I love how John notes that for us and then ignores him for the rest of the story. <laughs> he threw himself into the ocean. Ah, we don't know if it came out. I mean, it doesn't really tell us anymore. We just know he throws himself into the sea. And then verse 8. Oh, and by the way, the other disciples came in the boat and the other disciples hauled the fish in. They bring it back with them. They can't get it into the boat. So they have to paddle the boat in, pulling this gigantic weight behind them. And when they get to the shore, Jesus has set for them something special. It's got a charcoal fire in place. It's a, a stove, in essence. And he's got most likely a fish and a little bit of bread. And he says to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. Like, I've got food, but I want you to bring your food too. And so, okay, they, they haul the net in. Peter jumps in and finally starts helping at this point. And they have to go through and take out the good fish and throw out the bad fish and take out the good fish and throw out the bad fish. And oh yeah, by the way, there were 153 large good fish. That is a lot of fish. 
And that's a lot of fish for this time and this era, this kind of fishing. This would have been a massive haul. This would have been, think about it, like weeks worth of wages kind of thing. I mean, for income, I mean, this is like, this is a huge amount of money for them. And that kind of magically, but miraculously is the correct answer, the Lord does a miracle, the net didn't tear. This net's not designed for it. It's like, you know, you, you've got 20-pound fishing line out there and you catch a 100-pound shark. Oh, that ain't supposed to happen. This should have broken a long time ago. This is not actually possible. And then Jesus does something unbelievably tender and says, now come and eat. Come consume what I have provided for you. Now notice I've, he's provided it two ways. One, it's his own fish and bread. And two, was, it was his own fish that was in the sea. He's provided it through them, miraculously handing it to them. And, oh yeah, by the way, you had to work really hard to get that. But I still provided it nonetheless. And then he encourages them to come and to feast with Jesus. I love how John kind of notes, oh yeah, by the way, nobody dared to ask him his name. Why? Because they all knew that it was the Lord. Not interestingly because they recognized him, but because they recognized his deeds. No one does stuff like that except for Jesus. No one else can do miracles like that except for Jesus. No one else has power over creation like that. And I would simply highlight two things. Just draw forth so that we can kind of meditate on and think about before we come to the supper. One is again to be reminded of the power of the Lord Christ. He's not Superman. He's God Almighty. He does what He wishes. He appears next to the lake. He commands his guys to throw their net over. He causes the fish to leap into the net. He holds the fibers of the net together. He enables them to bring it back. He feeds them with fish that I don't know if he spontaneously made them or he called them to jump out of the sea and onto the fire. I would love to have watched that. Fish now, and they jump up. Okay, we'll we'll be the master's breakfast. How wonderful will that be? His tremendous power knows no limits. None. But that tremendous power is coupled with unbelievable kindness. Think about what this does for the disciples. One, they understand that he's blessing their work. They don't have to feel guilty when they have to go to work the next day. Jesus has already blessed their labors. Look, you're not designed to be in church service forever. You're designed to be here one in seven, and then those other six to go work and to work hard. And guess what? Jesus blessed it with miracles to help confirm it for him. And then on top of it, these men who would have been cold, certainly Peter swimming in the ocean. These men who would have been hungry, they've been working really hard. They would have been exhausted. They would have been tired. They would have been all of these things. And Jesus and his infinite kindness uses the power, divine power that he has and tenderly and kindly feeds them and encourages their faith in the process. I mean, do you think any of these disciples walk away from this and think anything less than how how gracious is our God? 
He fed me again. And he, he, he built me up and he made me strong. You see, in so many ways, that same principle, that same framework is actually going to be displayed here at this table. It's a special table, and it's a table that's showing both things. The tremendous power of God coupled with His unbelievable kindness. Well, how does it display His power? Well, in this table, we get to see the blood of Christ poured out, His body broken. We get to see victory over sin, death, hell, the grave. We get to see total victory, uh, tremendous power. The greatest enemies in world history have been conquered at this table. And that victory is shared with you. I mean, does God have to do that? No, he doesn't. I mean, think about this. Jesus could have just showed up on the shore and been like, not on the other side, you're good, I'll catch you later, I'm out, and disappeared. But instead, no, he feeds them, he nourishes them, he builds them up, and he strengthens them. Why? Because the next interchange that they have He's going to start emphasizing it's time to go to work. It's time to go to work. It's time for you to begin this process of building the church. In fact, actually, it's the next section. Peter gets his command to go be a preacher, to go be an elder. It's time to start working. And I would suggest this table's the same design for you. The Lord's going to nourish you. He uses it to build you up, to make you strong as the people of God. Why? Not so that you, oh, well, good, I, I'm all right. I'm, I, I'm going to make it through the week. I mean, good, you should make it through the week. I hope you do. But he's building you up for others' sake. I mean, think about, you, you have to think about your gifts the same way. The mind that he's given you, the body that he's given you, the health that he's given you, the suffering that he's given you, the humor that he's given you, the spiritual gifts that he's given you, the ability to pray. Those gifts are given for someone else's benefit, not just your own. I mean, use me as an example. Could I prepare sermons and then go stand in my closet at home and preach them? I could. My wife would think I was strange. But it would be good for me. It would nourish me spiritually. I get nourished as I'm preaching and as I'm preparing. It would be wonderful for my soul. But how much of a waste of a gift? I mean, how much of a waste? It's designed to be for your benefit. Your gifts are the same. Designed to be used for other people. And that can only be done as you are nourished by the power and the kindness of your Savior. The challenge for us as we go from here is, again, thinking of all of these things kind of knit into our brains. How will we, one, be nourished by God, and two, use the gifts that he has given? Think about how the world would be transformed just by the people in this room. Nourished by God, using our gifts for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you fed the disciples. Just as you fed the disciples then, you fed them weeks before, a week before with the uh, supper, now you feed us. May you make us ready for this feast. May you equip us to trust Christ, to feed on Christ, to be nourished by Christ, that we may grow in Him. For Christ's sake, amen.